You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Shani Carruthers, and today I'm joined by author and instructional specialist Miriam Plotinsky to discuss her new book, Teach More, Hover Less. Miriam, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm going to start by what you just commonly or just lovingly referred to as like your day job, your instructional specialist job. What What is an instructional specialist? What do you do? What do you love about it? And what are some good aha moments you've had? Being an instructional specialist, I never even knew that this job existed, I think, for most of my career, because I spent most of my career in the classroom. And then I started to hear about people who would go into schools and support teachers. And, you know, you could support them with professional development or with planning instruction or with looking at curriculum or it, it's all the different colors of the rainbow of what we could be doing in a school. And so I've been doing that in some capacity for five years. And for the first couple of years, I did it in pre-K to 12. And my background's completely secondary. So I learned a lot about elementary math, um, namely that I need a refresher in elementary math. Um, but essentially, I learned that uh, elementary teachers are just rock stars, which I think I knew already. But I was just amazed at what I learned about teaching from seeing the earlier grades and preschool. I can't even I can't even talk about that. Just, <laughs> it's a whole other level. Um, and then I after a couple of years of doing that, I transitioned back into secondary grades six to 12 and into my content area, which is secondary English language arts and literacy. So I do a lot with curriculum and instruction. Um, I work on book approvals. I do some things with examining texts and how they're used and why they're used. We're living in very controversial times. Mm -hmm. I have written about book banning. I feel very strongly about that. I think most teachers do. So an instructional specialist is just someone who is, if you're working for a district, you're in-house consultant, essentially, and you spend your day working with different schools. So I support um, all secondary schools in a, I think for the 14th largest district in the country. Oh, wow. So it's, it's a busy day job. <laughs> For sure. And uh, gosh, my mind is still in that space of when you're saying that you had to do K through 12 and but you're like mostly secondary as you know, as far as your experience and what a wake up call that was, but how it just truly helped you to have an even greater appreciation um, for the, the teachers at the lower levels as well. Uh, I think a greater appreciation for anything I could ever do. I mean, there are so many balls in the air and also just the the kinds of challenges that elementary teachers encounter that we don't see as much with older kids. Um, I mean, even like I would, I would walk down a hallway and I remember a child is holding out like a bloody Kleenex yeah. and being like, help me. I, <laughs> I'm not saying that totally threw me, but it was different than what I was used to. Right. Absolutely. So, all the props in the world. Yeah. And I, I want to go back for a second because you mentioned, you mentioned book banning and how you feel very strongly about that. Let's, let's talk about that for just a second. Um, we, we are living in the chaotic times of what kids should or should not be exposed to. Um, talk a little bit more about what are your feelings around book banning and what are some things that you've personally been able to do to kind of educate others um, about this particular topic? 
Well, I think that especially if you've been teaching English for your entire career, you probably feel, probably, I'm not going to make assumptions across the board, but you probably feel like the children should be reading the books. I mean, that's that's the first assumption that I make about, um, about educators in general. So I wrote, I think it was um, back this, I think it was February, I wrote an op-ed for Education Week about the banning of the book Mouse, M-A-U-S, mm-hmm. in Tennessee. And that's a graphic novel about the Holocaust. And it had been banned because they said it was too graphic and too disturbing. And actually, that treatment of the Holocaust is pretty, um, not, uh, compared to other books, I mean, it, they use the author or the artist, Art Spiegelman, he uses animals instead of people mm-hmm. to represent different characters. And it's more the ideas that are very controversial to some. Uh, They should not be controversial, but they are. And I read the whole transcript of the Tennessee School District and how they thought this was such a damaging book. And this was around the time as well that all these other books started getting banned at the same time. And if you look at the downfall of any society in terms of, let's say, democracy, for example, (laughs) one of the first things to go are the books. Mm -hmm. The books. So... I, I think that it's impossible to not feel strongly about it, especially because, for example, I was reading the other day that teachers in uh, Florida are starting to worry about what they can and cannot say in front mm-hmm. of children and the books they are teaching. Like one teacher, there was an article in the Washington Post, and she said she's teaching about Sally Ride, the astronaut, mm-hmm. but she can't talk about Sally Ride's personal life because Sally Ride is gay, mm-hmm. or she was. I don't know if she's still alive. I should mm-hmm. know this, but That's I don't. Um and so she couldn't think about she couldn't she couldn't know for sure whether she would get in trouble for teaching this book right. about this great astronaut this groundbreaking astronaut and i'm in a district where right now what i'm doing is i'm working to get approval uh for books that have representation for LGBTQIA+. Mm-hmm. This is like a huge project. We want to see more representation. Our students aren't seeing it. And so I'm in a part of the country where this is happening and this is considered to be a positive. Mm-hmm. And I think in general, when we talk about book banning, the thing that's really frustrating for teachers is that the people who are banning books are not the people who understand why they're being used. Mm-hmm. We select books because they support standards Mm -hmm. and skills that kids need to access at very specific points in their academic career. And so you look at quantifiable measures like Lexile levels, Mm -hmm. you know, how, how technically complex is this book, but that doesn't tell you everything. You also look at qualitative measures, you know, for anything from content to how, um, to how the ideas mesh with, with certain other elements of, you know, the story as compared to the complexity of the ideas, because you might have something that's really simply written, but the ideas are woo, way up there. Mm-hmm. So teachers are trained to look at these elements of books and how they're selected and to make connections. Oh, a ninth grader might not be able to access it for this reason, but an 11th grader can. And this, mm-hmm. is, this is part of what I do. When you look at why people ban books outside of education, it's because they're scared of the ideas or the content Mm -hmm. and they're not thinking about anything else. And they're also trying to sometimes protect kids. But I also think it's just trying to prevent access to to certain ideas. So I could go on about this for whatever time we have. But that's that's a quick summary of why I feel so strongly, because a we shouldn't be taking books out of hands mm-hmm. if educators who are trained to say they are there for an edu- like for an actual reason, an instructional reason, mm-hmm. are saying that they are there legitimately. Um, and also just because it's, it's a sign that we're all, things are getting very bad. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'll, books out of hands. I'll just ask you one more question before we move on. But in the 
in the beginning, you said kids should read the books. Why should kids read the books? Because that's how they learn. I, I really get so upset when people talk about ideas being controversial. And I wonder, since when did we decide that we should only look at things that we agree with? And when did we decide that everything has to be without friction? Learning mm-hmm. involves friction. It means you encounter challenging ideas. You right. encounter thoughts that might be a little bit um, outside of what you have experienced before. And the whole idea is that you have skilled adults who are with you mm-hmm. to help you. And the same people who are banning books and taking actual literacy away from kids are okay with them on TikTok. <laughs> I'm not real sure why that's legit. Yeah. You're not, you're not, you're not looking at everything they're looking at. You're, you're focusing on one medium and this is the medium that can educate them and education is power. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the. Yeah, no. And when you're talking about that friction with friction becomes student agency and their ability to advocate for themselves when they know who they are, when they know where they belong and that they're wanted. Um, and so bringing it back to your book about teaching more and hovering less, and this is all a part of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, that friction, that tension and allowing students um, to exist in the classroom that is created by them and the teachers kind of happens to be in the room. Um, but thinking about how teachers can step back how can teachers step back? How can they stop micromanaging? How can they get to the student agency um, that you were just talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and there is a lot of uncertainty around the idea of not micromanaging because there's this there are these false parallels that people create that control equals instruction, that the more we do, the more kids are learning. And these are all false parallels or dichotomies that we create as teachers. So when I wrote the book, I wrote it as a four-step process to how you can begin, if you are interested, if you're not interested, if you think micromanagement is great, then don't read the book. (laughs) But if you, but if you feel like you're working too hard and like you're coming home every night exhausted with your voice half gone, then you might be interested in, in uncovering some of that. So the stage is to, first of all, examine your beliefs around education and your mindset to determine just exactly how much you might be micromanaging. The second phase is to reframe how we relate to kids and to give them more academic identity in the classroom as learners, to really give them that credibility that I think we often do not Mm -hmm. um, by accident. We don't mean to, it just happens. The third stage is about how we plan for student engagement and we do that by involving them in the process. And then the fourth stage is then when we go into instruction, how can we provide choice? And that doesn't mean that every single day kids are doing whatever they feel like doing. Again, that's a misconception of this kind of method. It's when and where can we give them more opportunities to make choices because they are humans Mm -hmm. who probably enjoy doing that from, from time to time. Usually when you reference the mindset piece, starting with just kind of the very first step. And usually when people think about mindset, they think about fixed mindset versus growth mindset, but don't really understand what that means or don't really sometimes understand the strategies involved to begin to to move from a fix to a growth um, and how that translates back to the classroom. What are some good strategies um, or just uh, strategies or tips that can be utilize in order to kind of start to unlock those mindsets so that we can get to the classroom um, that you're describing. 
I love that you brought, brought in fixed and growth because one thing, and I, I teach a class about this, we talk about is how the power of effort mm-hmm. really has everything to do with whether or not, you know, how do we attribute our success? If I don't do well on something, am I blaming some sort of external force like the test was too hard or, you know, or am I, am I saying there's something that I had that I didn't do or that I maybe could do better next time? And that, that's sort of the difference between a growth mindset versus a fixed. And then when we think about our mindsets about ourselves, what do we really believe about what students can learn? When I walk into a classroom, do I actually believe that every child in front of me has the capacity to guide his or her own process? Or do I believe that they can't do it without me? Mm-hmm. So that if I step out of the room or if I'm sick... This is why you see so many teachers, by the way, in school when they're sick, mm-hmm. because they're so afraid that if they leave, nothing will happen. And it's possible that's the case, especially if the class has not been set up in such a way that kids know what to do when a teacher's gone. So what that first chapter does is I, I have some activities mm-hmm. that people can do either individually or in teams. First of all, you have a little fun activity called I might be a micromanager if... <laughs> I also have like a cosmopolitan style quiz right. you can take to see exactly how much of a micromanager you are. Cause I just thought those were fun growing up. It's like, I'll take a quiz. I'll yeah. find out who I am. Look under um, the flap, but I see the answers. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then looking at these mindset myths and trying to flip them. And the idea is awareness for that first stage, right? Let's have some awareness. So if I say that I believe in student learning, but then I'm hovering over them and I have illustrations that I've uncovered in this chapter with the tools, how do I address these contradictions between belief and action mm-hmm. in my practice? How do I start to peel away at that? What's one thing I can do to, to change that? And that's, that's the purpose of mindset because that's the hardest thing in the world to, to fix. I remember when I used to, um, I used to do a lot of interviewing and hiring when I was leading up a department. And the one thing I would look for to be in place if possible would be the mindset of that belief in students, because that was one thing you can build teacher capacity in any number of ways. But if, if that's not there, <laughs> then mm, that's a little harder. That's a little harder to manage. Yeah. But this is about us wanting to be self-reflective and no teacher who wants to be successful ever says, I'm done. I got it. I don't need to think about what I do. And I don't think teachers do that, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think they're most, they're made mostly an incredibly self-reflective group. Yeah, when you were saying, I believe all children can learn, but if the actions aren't really matching the words, then the, right, we're, we're out of alignment. And you were talking about that hovering, that helicopter teaching. I want to talk a little bit more that, about that because I was actually just talking to someone the other day about helicopter parenting and what mm-hmm. that looks like. And I know when we discuss helicopter teaching, it's not much different um, because you said that some teachers really believe that teaching only happens in their presence. Like if I'm not there, it's kids aren't going to learn. It's going to be a wasted day. But one, when does most learning happen? If, if teachers really believe that this only happens in my presence, but when does most learning happen? And then how do we begin to know that it happened if we're not just like right on top of the student? When does most learning happen? Um, that that's that's an interesting question. I think it doesn't happen when we think it does. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is a frustrating answer. But it's not when we're standing there staring at it. I mean, it's 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 not as though if I you know, I'm, I'm trying to teach kids how to structure an essay, and I'm 
you know, doing the whole sentence frames and starters and I'm, I'm, I'm being very hands-on with it. It's not like most kids in that moment are going to go, oh, <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. It's later on. Things have to marinate. We yeah. have to process. And I think a lot of the time, if we give kids more time to process, that's when the learning happens. Mm-hmm. So for example, if I ask kids a question and I actually give them five seconds of wait time, like I actually count to five and most teachers don't count to five, they count to 0.5. <laughs> unconsciously and jump right in. But if I give them time to process, they'll give me a thoughtful answer. And then once they speak, if I wait five more seconds, which is wait time two, they might build on it or elaborate on it or another student might jump in. So learning happens when we stop talking just a little bit, you know, yeah. and we, we allow for that processing time because there's only so much the brain can take. And helicopter teaching doesn't allow for any of that. Mm-hmm. So if I've been talking for you know, 10 straight minutes and I don't let kids have two minutes to process in some way, that learning won't happen. So that, that's sort of a, a roundabout way of saying learning happens when we step back a little bit and mm-hmm. let, let kids think about how to do it. And remind me of your second question. Oh, no, that's okay. How do we know that it, how do we know that it happened if we're not doing the hovering that you're speaking of? Well, there's this awesome thing that we call formative assessment that <laughs> a lot of people misunderstand, but it doesn't have to be a big deal where every day, We are seeing what kids know, and we can do that in a variety of ways, just asking a question and then looking at the answer and what it uncovers. Another thing I really like doing is asking kids what they learned. It's amazing how often we don't ask them that question and we try to guess. Like, oh, you know, I wonder wonder how they felt about the reading today. I wonder, what if we just said, how did you feel about the reading today? And then we would actually look at their responses and think about it when we plan instruction. I think a lot of teachers do do this, by the way, and they're awesome. And then you go back the next day and you say, here's what we're going to do today based on what you told me yesterday. Mm-hmm. So that, that's how we know. We have to really ask a lot of questions, listen to the responses. It's really a lot of listening more than talking and also following through on what, what they tell us. So the quieter we get, the more we can hear and the greater the buy-in for students. And so when we talk about that student buy-in, when we talk about removing the teacher as the sage on the stage, um, this is often a pipe dream because we have these conversations. Everybody knows that this is the way it should be. But then in reality, that doesn't always happen because sometimes we fall back into our kind of traditional styles of teaching But in this pipe dream, the class kind of runs itself. What does the mindset need to be of the teachers and the students in order to get to that pipe dream? The mindset has to be that we are normalizing and not just normalizing, but celebrating mistakes. Mm. Part of teaching, we all know we're going to fail pretty often. We're going to fall down. And that doesn't mean you throw away the whole thing that you wanted to do forever. You just rethink it. Mm -hmm. And, and we do that constantly. Kids need to know that too. My, my, one of my favorite things to do is to look at what answers kids are giving me that I never predicted Mm -hmm. because they reveal their thinking in ways, you know, and if, if traditionally we look at at an answer that's way out in left field and we go, yeah, no, that's not it. Let's go back to what I was trying to say, which is what most of us do. We're going to miss an opportunity to figure out how that kid's brain was working and yeah. why, they, why they came up with that to begin with. So a big piece of having this classroom is to let those mistakes happen. And when it happens, to be like, yes, what did we learn? 
And also to be very open about it. I can't tell you how many times I've said to kids, boy, did that, did that just crash and burn? Woo, so sorry. We'll try mm-hmm. again tomorrow. And being that way about myself, you know, yeah. as a teacher, it's really important to do certain things. When you don't know to say, I don't know, I will find out. Or can you help me? Mm-hmm. Or who might know? Because part of, you were talking about growth mindset, part of growth mindset is being resourceful, knowing who to ask. We're not the ultimate authority, but we know how to get the answers when we need to. And then another thing is being very open about, yeah, I uh, didn't do so well with that, did I now? And then letting them see that about you and that you're you're like, okay, well, we tried. How's everyone doing? We're still here. Nothing bad happened. Okay, so that, that, that's part of, of achieving the dream. And then the other part of achieving the dream is, is understanding that you can't have it all the time. There, there are going to be days you got to do your whole group, whatnot, your traditional, what people like to call the stage on the stage. Mm-hmm. So there's a place for that. That's not like, it's not like you can never do that. Right. You have to do it all the time? No. You know? You know? And can you teach kids to do certain things? Like I used to have, at the beginning of every quarter or whatever, a practice day where we would practice putting the room into different configurations. And it sounds like a ridiculous way to spend 45 minutes. But by the end of the 45 minutes, they know how to make small groups. They know how to make big groups. They know how to make circles. They know how to make whatever. And it also is really great in today's day and age where most teachers are floating in and out of classroom spaces. Mm -hmm. So you can teach kids, okay, when we come to this room, go into this configuration. And they go. And then on different learning days, depending on what you need, they can move. Yeah. And you only need to do that for one day. I love the notion of just the importance of transparency and vulnerability as the adult, um, which then gives permission for the students. And then when you're talking about sometimes you just crash and burn and students give the wrong answer. And you speak about this a little in your reframing relationships section, which is around the second step when the student gave the quote unquote wrong answer um, between the lion and the mouse and talking about parasites, um, but the way that the teacher was able to reframe um, that question in order to preserve the relationship was really important. Um, So when that happens, and sometimes it doesn't always go that way, Um, sometimes relationships are unintentionally harmed when a student gives that kind of answer, but it's not validated. Instead, they're kind of made to feel like shame. Um, how do you fix that? How how do you fix those kind of relationships that you've been working so hard to create, but then can just go away um, in just a, a snap because of an unintentional um, word or phrase, etc.? To be honest, this is what I live in terror of as a teacher, and I, not just with kids. I teach adults as well, and we accidentally offend people on a regular basis. You know, we don't know the impression that we have on them. We think we had a casual exchange or that something was fine and somebody goes home and their feelings are hurt. Uh, and the example I give in the book is, is a girl who doesn't want to speak up very mm-hmm. often, but she thinks she knows an answer. And the teacher in the first scenario, I believe, moves on. Yeah. She doesn't quite give the right answer. Oh, okay. You know, and, and we do this a lot. You know, a kid says something, not what you're thinking. Okay. Any other thoughts? Mm-hmm. And the second you do that, the kid gets the message of, all right, well, I messed up. And, yeah. and children are sensitive. Adults are too, but, but it's harder when you're a kid and you put yourself out there and you're not willing to do it again. So if you're aware that that's happened, because very often we're not aware, so you can't really be held responsible for the stuff you don't notice, but 
if you are aware that's happened, then you have to try to do better the next day. Mm -hmm. So finding what I would do is I would find something specific about something that the kid did in the middle of class. And I would just highlight and say, wow, the idea that you just shared is so important because here's what it does. And the more specific you can get with your praise, not and again, not you're a cool person. I like you. That's, that's not going to get you anywhere. Right. Um, you have to validate their ideas and, and make them feel like they're a legitimate part of the class. And once you've done that, you'll get them back. You'll get them back. Yeah. And once you validate those ideas, you're creating a space where they feel safe to share, face safe to show up, um, speak up, etc. But how are strong relationships and safe spaces connected? Where how do those two things kind of merge? So kids who don't feel safe don't trust you. Mm-hmm. And when they don't trust you, they won't they won't work for you or with you. It's 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 really that simple. I mean, I wouldn't want to. I I I think that in the past, if I think about my history with teachers who had my trust versus those who didn't, um, I just really needed to feel as though they believed in me. Like they mm-hmm. felt like I had a brain and a contribution that was that was worthwhile. And, and we don't trust people who don't validate our intelligence in school. That's what school is is, is partly there for. It's there mm-hmm. for other reasons, too. But especially when we're in an academic environment, if the teacher is just saying, oh, nice outfit, or ignoring you completely, or being kind of an innocuous force in your life, you don't trust them. They don't have to be actively rude or mm-hmm. unpleasant for a child to get the impression that it's just not working out. So that that trust is really important with specifically you as a learner, you as a scholar. And this is something that I'm working on um, for sort of my next writing, my next writing, my next writing (laughs) trick. Um, I really want to explore how we build student identity. Also, I've been thinking a lot about the quiet kids. I've been Mm. thinking about them so much because I know this because I have one. Quiet kids are not quiet, first Mm -hmm. of all. They're only quiet when they're uncomfortable. And for the most part, and they also get really offended by that label. Yeah. And so when we think, oh, you know, it's just a really quiet kid. There's something we're missing a lot of the time about that child and how we haven't accessed something that they need. So let's talk for a second about that kid who's choosing maybe to not be heard um, and to choosing to not share the details of their lives. But that doesn't mean that they don't want to be seen. And I know that you do struggle with that um, confusion about validating kids based on their willingness to share the details um, instead of truly just creating a space where learners feel value, no matter like what kind of introvert, extrovert you are. How do you um, help people to understand that it's not about the details, but it is about feeling value? How do you how do you create that understanding for other educators? A lot of the time, it's really on breaking it down into some very technical pieces. So, for example, I talk a lot about the difference among, and I learned about this in, in a book that escapes me, but we, we think of feedback as a lot of different things, mm-hmm. like, for example, grading and making suggestions or providing guidance. What I've learned over the years is that feedback, guidance, and evaluation are three different things. So when I give students feedback, I'm supposed to be giving them objective, value-free information about their performance in relation to a product. So for example, the very classic example I like to point out is if the speed limit is 25 and you're going 30, you're mm-hmm. exceeding the standard that has been set. It's just it's just an observation. 
there's no value. And when you grade students in that way, when you provide that feedback, you were supposed to give me a five sentence paragraph. I only see three. We need two more sentences. The focus is on the product, right. not on the child. Whereas a grade is some sort of evaluation and judgment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even a suggestion is, is you know, I would, I would spend more time on this. You clearly have not spent more time that you need to. And then kids get, yeah. mm, then it starts to get a, a really tricky. So when, you know, how do you build that? How do you start doing that? Um, one way is to focus on what you're trying to achieve and then to say, okay, well, here's the, here's the situation. I needed five sentences. I got three. Mm-hmm. What can we do together? Because I know you have two more sentences in you. And here are some, let me hear your ideas and then I'll share some ideas and we'll work together. And that's when you start building the relationship around, around the work. Let's use that example though for a second. When the, the teacher has a requirement of a five sentence paragraph and the student submits three, is that an opportunity for a student to say, well, actually, this isn't the best way for me to show you that I learned this, um, you know, just having these five sentences. How can a teacher use that as a relationship building moment in order to um, have students kind of co-author their learning? Whenever a student comes at me with a different option <laughs> for what I've asked for, you know, and very often it's not necessarily the three sentences. It might be, can I draw this instead? Right. Or can I, or this is the classic one, can I bullet point my ideas? <laughs> it all depends on what I'm looking for and why. So the first thing I'll say is, first of all, show me how, show me your thinking. Mm-hmm. Why do you, why do you want to do it this way and not the way I'm asking? So first of all, listen to what they're saying, mm-hmm. because if it's just, I want to work less, <laughs> That's not legitimate, but right. if they can actually explain why it's not working for them your way and why it's working for them their way, at least give them that audience because they deserve that. Now, having said that, sometimes we can be flexible and we can say, okay, draw the thing, do the bullet points. Just I'm looking for clarity of ideas today. So however your ideas are clear, fantastic. But if your learning goal that day is to write a full paragraph because you are trying to teach kids how to elaborate mm-hmm. on ideas and develop them further, and add detail. What you can say is, I respect what you're saying and what you're telling me, and I'm glad you trust me enough to tell me that. However, here's what I'm trying to accomplish mm-hmm. with you, and here's why. Here's the end goal. And so you make it a dialogue. Yeah. And then you constantly say, because I believe in this, your success is important to me. So how are we going to ensure that you're successful in meeting this learning outcome that we have for today? Yeah. And I I think that's one of the great things about your book, because you use different anecdotes like that about different students in different situations that are very familiar to to any teacher. And then you'd sometimes take that same student and show them how it might change if they if this were to pivot. And in your um, chapter three, when you talk about that engagement and that investment, it's exactly what you were just talking about, um, about that buy in and how sometimes you can be flexible and just kind of what are the benefits of that? Um, because you you reference a student that was kind of checked out, um, but then when the teacher was able to discover, oh well, hey, he likes cars, and so this is kind of a way that we can increase the engagement in order to have a greater impact for the students who really invest in their learning. But it really takes the teacher doing a lot of planning on the front end to really make sure that that engagement happens to kind of create some different segments for what that could look like. So how does teacher planning impact 
how engaged and invested students are in their work. So it's interesting that when we think about planning, we are probably doing a lot more than we realize. It's just that we're doing it on the back end instead of the front end. Right. So, for example, when we're planning a more student-centered classroom, what we're really planning for is some flexibility. You know, what happens if I plan A and it goes to B? How do I go ahead and meet the same goal, making sure that I also give kids an opportunity to express their ideas in, in a variety of ways? So a couple things I'll say. First of all, most of us, I hope, are not working alone. <laughs> We're working in teaching teams. And if you are working alone, then that's that's a little bit harder. But the idea is you're finding ways to collaborate on lessons and maximize one another's skills so that you're not reinventing wheels constantly. Uh, another idea that I really find so appealing, and I talk about it all the time, is Catlin Tucker. She's a blended learning expert. She talks about turning your agenda sideways. And all that means is you take everything that you were going to do anyway, and everything on the agenda becomes a station or a point in the room. Mm-hmm. And it's a very... On the surface of it, simple idea, but then you think about it and you're like, whoa, I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm doing the same stuff. I'm just doing it differently. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is the power of good first instruction. So by hearing students more along the way and by getting more feedback. So if I have the flexibility as a teacher, because I have on a particular day, some students are working on a project, some students are writing, some students are reading, and I, the teacher, I'm either circulating or I'm conferencing, I see more student work and I hear more students along the way so that when I'm grading their stuff, it's not the same surprise it would have been. Mm -hmm. I'll have a better sense as we're working where they stand and where they are and whether they're getting it. And there's less of a chance I'm going to have to go back and reteach mm-hmm. because reteaching is a lot of work on the back end when you are a week or two out from the unit and then you go, oops, they yeah. didn't, they didn't get that. I got to go back. So a lot of it's about planning for really strong first instruction that tells you how kids are doing and really focusing on the feedback and focusing on the formative pieces and giving yourself the time and space to look at what they're doing in the classroom so that you're doing less later on. Right. So it's just about where you're putting it. It's not... It's not more total. It's just in a different place. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it makes total sense in in a place that allows for greater engagement and investment. Um, We've been talking a lot about teachers, um, but I know the the point that you're making here in these different stages around the mindset and the reframing of relationships, um, engagement to investment and choice-based instruction. It's also very true for the ed leaders who are in the building. How do these strategies also ring true for them and how they lead for others? So we're talking about administrators yes. and instructional leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always thought we should practice as we preach. Yeah. And sometimes we go to, we go to meetings and it's, it's, they call it death by PowerPoint, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you're sitting there in front of a slideshow for an hour and it's a slideshow everybody could have read on their own. The whole thing could have been an email. <laughs> so if we're talking about engaging students, We should probably try some of those same techniques when we are leading. And so if a school has a professional development focus of student-centered anything, make the meetings like that. Let teachers move in and out of stations. They can access some differentiated methods. They can look at different resources. They can make some choices. Then you're showing that you understand this approach from a much more practical and and hands-on perspective. Um, I also think that if you don't feel like you as a leader might have this capacity yet work with a teacher who's really strong with it because 
in my experience, when teachers lead meetings and when teachers lead a lot of the instructional push of a school, then you have a lot more buy-in and people want to listen because it's your colleagues. They're doing it every day. They have experience. And in fact, my second book, which is coming out next year, it's called Lead Like a Teacher. Mm -hmm. And it's all about how to run your school from this teaching perspective. You know, sometimes that might mean planning a lesson with a teacher or asking a teacher if you can have their class for a day while they go observe others or all sorts of options that you have for, for being, because once you go into administration, a lot of the time, having that connection to instruction, I mean, there's like a million fires. Right. It's such, it's such an intense job. Yeah. They're in triage constantly. So of course, what happens is that the observations start falling by the wayside and, and all of those pieces that they probably want to do more than anything else. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I love it. your your new book that you referenced, Leading Lead Like a Teacher. And it reminds and having the administrator kind of ask for support from the other instructional leaders in the school, I think does a really good job of reminding the administrators that they are the principal teacher in that building. Because like you said, there are other fires that they're constantly having to put out, but ultimately they are just the highest teacher in that building and, and should be continuing those practices when they can, because we understand that obviously um, things aren't easy. Yeah. And I wrote an article about it, I think for, um, it was for Edutopia a couple of years ago. It was pre-pandemic, but it was you know, why administrators could benefit from remaining in the classroom in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And I talked to some really cool principals who found ways to teach every day. How did you do that? <laughs> Very inspirational. But I, I feel that way for, for all of us. I feel that way for me too. I, I've been in a non-classroom position now for five years. I still teach. Mm-hmm. In fact, I am teaching all day tomorrow. Because that's how it stays real. And in Zoom, I thought it was really important when we were in Zoom land to teach in Zoom land so that I understood what teachers were facing when I talked to them. And that doesn't mean, by the way, I understood because I was working with adult learners a lot of the time, although I was also working with kids. But just having that empathy. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in my upcoming book, I call the, the separation that occurs, I call it an empathy gap. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we just don't. So how do, we, how do we close that up a little bit more? Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation, but I don't want to let you go without asking about the other important piece in your life. Because before we got on, you mentioned that you were a music major. So I, I do have a, a very long time ago. A long time ago, but that's okay. I don't remember anything. I was young and happy. It's, it's an easy question, I promise. But I want to know what song or artist should our listeners turn on today? Oh, wow. Oh, I wish I had been prepared for this. easy, but I know it's really not. Because- no, that's not an easy question at all. That's really hard. Um, oh, man. I'm, like, wishing I could, like, cheat. And I, I want to be, like, students. I want to open up my phone and look at my Pandora. Okay, I'll tell you who I was listening to. This is my editing music. Okay. Because I write a lot, um, obviously. And her name is – she's a film, film soundtrack person. Her name is Rachel Portman. Okay. She did a lot of movie soundtracks, especially circa 90s and 00s. I love her. She did Chocola. I don't know if you're familiar with Chocola. I'm not. It's a great movie about chocolate. Okay. And it's a great soundtrack. Rachel Portman, she's fantastic. And it's great background music to think through, think to and write to. That is your recommendation. Very, very green. Like, it doesn't matter who's screaming in the background or what's going on. You're going to get your zen on. You're going to feel good. Well, that sounds perfect. We all need a little dose of more of that kind of balance. So Miriam, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast and teaching us a little bit more about um, 
micromanagement and giving students more agency, band books, music, all the things. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure being here. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and, and, and talk to you about all the things. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen.